the National Archives podcast series, Civil Registration and Beyond, presented by Audrey Collins. Okay, the talk today has got civil registration and beyond, and it's basically well, what I feel like talking about, really. It's not the basics of births, marriages and deaths and how to do your family history. There are lots of other places you can find out about that. There are websites, there are books, loads and loads of stuff in print. What I'm going to cover today is a lot of things that you probably didn't know. Some of it uh, about the background and some of it about just some lesser known facts, things that interest me really. And uh, as Jill said, I am the self-confessed civil registration nerd and I've been picking away at this subject mainly in records that are held here in this building at Kew, and just finding out um, really what went on behind the scenes at Somerset House, for want of any better subtitle. This is the man, Thomas Henry Lister, who was the first Registrar General, and um, he really got the thing going. Um, Didn't do a bad job, actually. He had a pretty good idea of what was required, and it wasn't his fault that the Treasury never, ever gave him enough money uh, or his successors. Uh, to to do a job to what they considered would be its um, full potential. Uh, In fact, from as early as 1838, when they were starting to compile the very first actual indexes, they were already writing to the Treasury and saying, please, can we have more money? Because rather like um, when you put a completely new set of records online in modern parlance, nobody quite knows what's going to happen until, it's, uh, until you actually open the floodgates and see, and see what develops. And starting civil registration was a bit like that. Nobody quite knew what sort of numbers were going to be involved. And uh, it was all a bit finger in the wind. And very early on, they had far more than they could cope with. They've never, ever really caught up. So that's a plea for the, uh, the poor old beleaguered staff at the General Register Office. I'm going to give you a little bit of the background, why and how civil registration came about in the first place, and a couple of glimpses into what might have been, a couple of things that might have been done differently. And also some common misconceptions, one in particular, and just some interesting facts. So things that I think are interesting, and I hope you will find them interesting too. And even though this won't tell you how to do research and how to use the civil registration records. I think if you know a bit about what went into creating them in the first place, I think understanding them might help you actually using them if you want a practical application for this. But I hope you just find it interesting. This is some of the background. This is a long chronology here. There were attempts throughout the 1830s, and trust me, the politics behind this is utterly fascinating. Yes, it is. You had the Whigs and the Tories, and the, the Church of England has often been described as the, as the Tory party at prayer. And in the 1830s, that was a fairly apt description. And if you want to put it fairly crudely, the Conservatives, the establishment, were very happy with the way things were, thank you. They liked the Church of England having an effective monopoly on the legal registration of births, marriages and deaths. Because although it wasn't compulsory, you will see in some books written by people who should know better that registration in the Church of England was compulsory. It wasn't, but it did have a legal status that no other religious denomination had. Even people like the Quakers, who were exempt from having to marry in the Church of England, 
Even people like those who kept fantastically good records, didn't matter how good they were, they did not have the legal status that any messy, horrible, badly kept Church of England register had just because it was the established church. Set against this were, roughly speaking, the Whigs, the nonconformists, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Unitarians, all the rest of them, who were very keen on having some sort of civil registration because it would be an alternative to having to use the Church of England to make your documents legal. So they wanted to be able to go and marry without having to go and stand in front of a Church of England vicar with your fingers crossed behind your back, uh, making oaths in the Church of England that you really weren't very comfortable with, but you needed to do that for your children to be legitimate. And these are a couple of the attempts. There was an attempt in 1832, and that got amended by committee. Now, this is a great parliamentary game, which goes on still today, that one house, uh, and in this case the House of Commons, which, were, which had a Whig majority, would formulate a nice bill for civil registration, and then that would go to the committees, and uh, incidentally would also go to the House of Lords, and then it would be picked to bits by the people who didn't like it. You couldn't keep on doing this indefinitely, Otherwise, there never would be an end to anything. So once you'd got something that had been back and forth a couple of times, you had to either go with it, pass it into law, if you had a Commons majority, or drop it and start again. And this is what happened in 1832. There was a bill, and it was mangled out of all recognition, so the government dropped it. 1834, there was another attempt, uh, and then that was mucked about with. Um, as before. And then in 1836, there was another one, and this is the one that eventually got through. And it was, by common consent, really, a bit of a pig's breakfast, because, but it was the best that they were going to get. It had got to the stage where it either had to be passed into law or it would be lost yet again. So the Whig government decided that although it had been mucked about with and there was one wonderful little booby trap that was put in by the House of Lords which was that marriages in church were most commonly after bans which were read out three successive Sundays in the church where you were going to get married and also in the other the, if the bride and groom came from two different parishes be read out in both parish churches well setting up civil marriage was a secular equivalent of this. And somebody pointed out that there was therefore no, because it wasn't a church marriage, there was no suitable gathering where the bans could be called out or the secular equivalent of bans could be called out. But because civil registration was being based on the boundaries and uh, the, the administrative framework of poor law unions, which had just been set up a couple of years before, Someone in the House of Lords, when it was amended, came up with a brilliant idea that these notices to marry could be read out at the meetings of the boards of guardians of the poor law union. So that was really getting your marriage off to an auspicious and elegant start uh, and was probably just one more reason why people were reluctant to use register office marriages. Uh, that particular bit of the law was repealed in 1840, but if you look at Guardian's Minutes for that intervening period, you do see occasional notices of marriage being read out. 
In practice, civil marriages were very rare. There were far more marriages that took place in non-conformist places of worship, but with a registrar present. People marrying in the actual registrar office itself were still fairly rare to begin with. And in fact, you could, it wasn't always clear where the registrar office was, because registrars to start with, and in fact for very nearly a century, were not salaried. They were part-time. They might be full-time if they earned enough from their registration activities, but essentially they were paid on piecework. So they would set up business at their normal business premises. Very often these people who were registrars of births, deaths, marriages, or superintendent registrars were actually poor law union officials, or they were local tradesmen. So uh, in England you could literally get married by the blacksmith, I suppose, because um, there were... Uh, people of all trades who were registrars. Anyway, that's the reason why the, the infamous 1836 Birth, Marriage and Death Acts are not very satisfactory. And they said more or less, well, we can, we'll, we'll get it into law, at least that's, that's a start, and then we can sort it out later. Well, apart from a couple of very small tinkerings, including this thing in 1840 where they took the uh, uh, notices of marriage out of the poor law meetings... It didn't really get changed substantially for about another 40 years, but then that's the speed that sometimes government departments work at. (laughs) Now, this is what might have been. This is from an 1831, the one the 1832, started 1831, 32. This was a proposal for what a birth certificate might look like. And you've got their very familiar to anybody who's seen a modern birth certificate. You've got the date uh, of birth. You've got the father's name and occupation and and address, and you've got details of the mother, including her maiden name. You've got the date and place of the parent's marriage, which is wonderful. Of course, you're getting that on Scottish certificates as a matter of course, but I won't dwell on that for those of you who have the misfortune not to be Scottish. Um, And then the name of the child, and something which might be familiar to people who have ancestors in uh, Yorkshire or Durham, these are rather like what we call the Dade registers, where you don't just get the name of the child, but where where they come in the family, and um, the exact place of birth as well, and then details of the informant. So it looks quite a bit like the certificates that eventually came into being. But wouldn't it have been nice if we'd had that date and place of marriage thing and uh, order in the family? Oh, well, that didn't happen. Neither did this. This is from the, the second attempt, and this is what a birth might have looked like under that. Now, this is cut down a bit. You've got, again, looks very, very like the modern certificate. In fact, it it, it pretty much is, except that it gives you the name of the father and the name and maiden surname of the mother, which in most cases is absolutely fine. But if the parents weren't married, you wouldn't be alerted by that certificate. Whereas if you're sharp-eyed on a, a regular English certificate, you will see whether the parents are married or not. And uh, then there is a death one, which again is very similar to the ones that did come in uh, in 1837. You've got the name um, of the person who died and the, the, the date of death, the sex, the age, and where born. Oh, now wouldn't that be nice? 
Well, we do get that, but you had to wait until 1969 to get that on a, an English death certificate. So that was ahead of its time, in a sense. What you might notice, though, though is that what doesn't appear on that proposed death certificate was the cause of death. And that did come in. That was added in at a very late stage in the discussions. It's very easy to forget that civil registration was actually set up almost for genealogical purposes, really. The functions of the General Register Office very quickly got taken over by the statisticians, and it later became part of the Office of Population Censuses and Statistics, which later became the Office for National Statistics. And the statistical branch uh, was very, very important and influential in the workings of the General Register Office, but it wasn't actually there right at the very beginning, and that was not the idea when it started. The point of civil registration, the the justification for it, in fact, was to provide proof of relationships, proof of descent. It actually was for genealogical purposes, believe it or not. The trouble is, it it was aimed at people who knew what they were looking for and they were just trying to prove it it actually turned out not to be terribly suitable for people who were trying to find stuff out from a standing start. And the the great bone of contention is that why can't we look at the certificates without buying the blessed things at £7 a throw or more? And it is entirely down to a bit of wording in that 1836 Act said information may only be given in the form of a certified copy of an entry in the register. And it's the C word um, that does it. Certified copy. Nearly 20 years later, when civil registration was set up in Scotland, and then another decade after that, when it started in Ireland, the acts relating to that refer to extracts, not certified copies. So that is why if you are looking in Scottish records, not only are they more detailed, but they are not handicapped by this certification clause. Now, I haven't got to the bottom of that yet. I haven't found any correspondence or reference as to why that was left out of the Scottish Act, but thank goodness for my own entirely personal and selfish point of view, thank goodness it was. Now, once civil registration got underway... First of all, nobody quite knew how it was going to work. This is what always happens when you have a brand new system. First thing that happens is pretty much confusion. You prepare as best you can. And I said, uh, Mr. Lister actually did a fair old job of working out the framework. But the first thing that happens is confusion, accompanied by disobedience and dislike of change. And there was quite a lot of that. Now, some of it was just people who were, we don't like change, what's wrong with the old methods, and after a while, quite, quite happy to fall in with it. But there were some people who had an absolute principled objection, who were not having this, and who were going to comply um, under protest, kicking and screaming, and from the, the comfort of a jail cell if necessary. And there were a number of groups of people... Church of England clergy, by no means all of them, most Church of England clergy are decent law-abiding people, and while they might not have liked this new law, they would go along with it, maybe not enthusiastically, but they would comply. But there were a few, there were a hardcore 
who really set out to make as much trouble as they possibly could. One of them um, comes up quite a lot in the correspondence, the Reverend Boyle, Wolverhampton. So if anyone has any ancestors um, whose records they're having trouble finding um, in, in Wolverhampton in the late 1830s and early 1840s, you probably have the Reverend Boyle to blame for that. His name crops up quite often, and in fact he crops up once, and the description, his name isn't given, but the description um, makes it so clear that that's who they're talking about. He really, by that time, needed no introduction. And there are lots of reports from poor, beleaguered registrars who are desperately doing their best to try and get all these births registered and are having trouble because the clergyman is going round saying, no, no, you don't need to register in fact, you shouldn't register. You will go to hell if you register, and all sorts of things like that. I mean, most of them just confine themselves to making trouble, but there were one or two who actually printed outright lies. And there is a, a little pamphlet in the British Library which was published by a, a, a very troublesome clergyman, um, which um, was, was just um, quite... Uh, well, I'm not sure if it was actually libelous because it wasn't against a particular person. I'm not sure if you could libel an organisation. But either way, it was extremely troublesome. And you get lots of reports of people who are refusing to give information, or giving the information and refusing to sign the register book. And some of them uh, were obviously organised by local clergymen. And a clergyman called Cooper uh, in 1838 was averse to registering and has tried to dissuade other parents. Scarcely any uneducated person throughout the parish will give me the information. But that same registrar had very few problems in any other parishes. The, so the non-compliance was quite high, but it was very, very localised. So you would find that it would be literally one parish or maybe a couple of parishes within a district. Uh, it wasn't evenly spread all over the country. And one common misconception, in fact, is that the rate of registration, of non-registration, was, was very high up to 1874, of which more later. And the actual rate of non-registration was worked out by the government statistician, no less, Dr. Farr. Overall, in that, in that first 40 years or so of, of civil registration, it was about 7% was the total rate of non-registration. This is comparing with parish returns of baptisms with figures gained from the census and tried and tested statistical techniques, whatever they are. Um, and he worked out it was about 7% overall. But this is skewed towards the very early period, the 1830s and 1840s, and in particular, some areas. And these were rather what you'd expect. Places like Cornwall uh, and Wales, where the landscape is not very conducive to popping round to the registrars. In those early days, the registrars would go and, and visit people. In fact, they had an interest in doing it. They were paid on piecework, so the more births they got registered, the more they earned. So they had every incentive to make sure that everybody was rounded up and registered. But because they were part-time, and they had other jobs in most cases... There was no guarantee that the registrar would be where you hoped he would be. So imagine if you were a farm worker in mid-Wales, in winter, are you really going to trudge however many miles it is to the nearest town, just on the off chance that the registrar would be there 
and not off on his round summer because he was the local doctor or the relieving officer for the poor law union. You probably had better things to do. So you might not be averse to the notion of registering, but it wasn't something you were going to go to a lot of trouble to do. So you get that in remote areas where the geography is against you, and also in very, very crowded inner-city slum areas where the registrar... Well, it would be a very brave registrar who'd venture into a, a slum full of people when there was a scarlet fever epidemic going on, for example. Okay, he'd register an awful lot of deaths, but um, he was taking a hell of a chance. Um, and that is precisely where, of course, you get newly arrived immigrants uh, in the east end of London from Europe or in Liverpool and Manchester, recently arrived people from Ireland who have no idea about this registration carry-on. So if people say, oh... Before 1875, registration wasn't compulsory, so you might not find a birth registration. That is just not the case. The other thing about that was that people seize on the phrase that says people may register and say, ah, it wasn't compulsory, it was optional. But if you read on to the next line in the Act, it then points out what will happen to you, that you can be prosecuted if you don't register. Basically, the onus was on the parents to do the registration, but the registrar had a, every, a great financial incentive to make sure that he found out and got the information from them. When the 1874 Act came in, the onus was then on the registrar. Now, I mentioned the Church of England clergy. Doctors, who are a very independent-minded bunch, again, a lot of them were perfectly fine, but there were a few who were um, very antagonistic towards the notion of civil registration, and were influential people. So if you get somebody who is a doctor, he's somebody that the community will look up to, you hope. Um, and, and if he is uh, disseminating a particular opinion, then you might be inclined to go along with it. There were one or two coroners as well who were very averse to the Act and um, who, who could, see, could see nothing in the Act that, that required them to, to register. Um, one of them was... Um, the coroner was a Mr. Marshall of Kettering, and he said in 1838 he absolutely refused to sign any death registers because he, he could see nothing in the Act that required him as a coroner to sign. And he was quite right because the, the list of informants for births and deaths uh, was quite a decent list that they come up with, but of course you never think of anything, you never think of everything first time round. So, um, although most coroners are quite happy to comply, if you've got an independent, awkward-minded person, then that's, uh, that's what would happen. So there were some coroners and one or two lawyers and various others. Some people just had a really, really principled objection to it. One of them, and I, I love this very much, this was a letter, an absolutely heartfelt letter, from a Mr. Edward Crooks, who was a tailor in ashton underline. And in 1838, he refused to register the birth of his child. And he refused to do so until the law compelled him. And he wrote to, to the registrar, or registerar, as he put it, Mr. Thomas Hilton. And I'll get rather breathless reading this because he used no punctuation. <laughs> Having received your communication to me respecting the registration of my child, I state to you in the following terms. Full stop. It's the one punctuation mark he uses. 
I am very sorry that you have had the trouble and been at the expense of paper and ink for this case which would have done very well without. When you were at my house last Friday, I told you that the child had been registered in one place and it should not be registered in more. I think that was enough without you sending me any letter for either me or my wife to come down to you and register the child. I tell you candidly that neither me nor my wife will come down and nor shall you register the child at all, so you can write to the Register General in London as soon as you please. I would rather be hanged in gibbets than you should register the child. I am not that sort of person that wishes to bring children chargeable to a parish before they can eat a bit of bread. Neither will I do while I can do for them myself. Besides, my friend, all the children we shall have, I intend to take them to the parish church and have them baptised and registered properly, so that when I want any of the registers for any purpose, I have only to apply to the parish clerk and he will find them me for payment, which I am always willing. Besides, I have been informed, as I told you at my house, that you intended to put me in Kirkdale Prison for two years if I did not give you every information respecting the birth of my child without any just cause or provocation whatsoever, which has put me about so much that I will now give you the chance to put me either in Kirkdale or any other prison in the world during my natural life for you shall never register any of my children so long as you live as I do. Sir, remain yours respectfully, Mr Edward Crooks. Very respectfully. <laughs> I kind of respect that. I mean it was very, very heartfelt. Nobody put him up to that letter. That was all, that was all him. But the poor old registrar said of a terrible difficulty um, in those early days. It did calm down a bit and it very soon moved on to the other thing that happens when you have a new system, which is people figure out how it works and what the angles are, and then you get all the frauds kicking in. But that's a different talk altogether. So maybe some other time. Now, I mentioned 1874, and this was the big tidy-up act. And it was a very significant act. First thing, which I've now mentioned, register offices had fixed hours of business. If you were a registrar, whether you're a superintendent registrar who was in charge of the whole district and who could register births, marriages and deaths, or one of the local registrars who could do births and deaths. You had to have a fixed place of business. Now, it didn't have to be the register office, which incidentally was very often the office of the uh, clerk to the board of guardians, who was usually also the superintendent registrar. Um, it might be your place of business if you, you could be a, a tailor, an upholsterer, um, people of all occupations were registrars. Uh, there's a nice table that was produced um, relating to 1881 for all the, the different occupations that were followed by registrars. And it's quite fascinating. Most of them are poor law union officials. Quite a lot of them were doctors. Quite a lot of them were lawyers. Um, but then you get a whole lot of others. You get all sorts of tradespeople. Um, and you even get a few labourers in pretty much every occupation that you can think of. Even some clergy, mostly nonconformists, but you do get the occasional um, Church of England clergyman. So they weren't all hostile. So that, that was um, one significant thing that you had. There was a register office where you could go to and you could rely on, you hoped, the registrar being present for might only be an afternoon a week or something like that, but at least it was a fixed advertised time. You could still have the registrar come to your house to register a birth in person, um, but you, ha you had to pay a shilling for that. So I'm sure posh people did that, just because they could afford it. But generally speaking, that smartened that up a bit, and that did make it a bit easier for people. 
There were some changes to the registration of births. Again, the wording was such that the, it was tightened up so that it was now quite unambiguous. It was compulsory. But people had been prosecuted before. Uh, in fact, handbills were made up with um, reports of the various prosecutions where people had refused to sign the register book or had refused to give information at all. So there were some before 1874, and they were quite well publicised to encourage the others. But the law was tightened up, the wording was tightened up, there was a slightly wider range of people were now entitled to be informants. So that made it a little bit easier. And, and there were various other small details. Um, there were changes to registration of deaths, and this, I think, was probably even more significant because one of the great things about death, about civil registration, is meant to be that it's much more thorough than parish baptisms, marriages and burials, because baptisms, marriages and burials are not the same as births, marriages and deaths. Okay, a marriage is a marriage is a marriage. You have to turn up and somebody says a few words. But, the, but a baptism could be a long time after a birth, or it might never occur at all. And a, a death and a burial are not the same. Okay, for practical purposes, the burial usually takes place pretty fast after the death, but it is not the same thing. So civil registration was more thorough. It absolutely applied to everybody, even if they wouldn't touch the Church of England with a pair of tongs. Um, but there was one flaw, and that is, to have a baptism, you need a baby, or at least a person. To have a burial, you need a body. And the regulations regarding the registration of deaths in the early days were quite good. You weren't supposed to bury somebody unless you actually had a, a, a death certificate. And because it was not necessarily practical to leave an unburied corpse while somebody ran off and found the registrar, um, churchmen were allowed to conduct a burial of somebody without a death certificate, provided they then informed the registrar. And again, that was complied with more or less. It was a bit iffy in the early years, but it was much better than the births. So no great problems. Problem was in another direction altogether. Because you don't need, you need a body to have a burial, but you don't actually need a body to get a death certificate. At least you didn't until 1875 when this act came into force. You could go along to the registrar and say, auntie's dead, and you say, terribly sorry, give me the details. And away you'd go with a perfectly legal certificate with, with a seal on it. And um, the possibilities for fraud were quite considerable. Um, once the 1874 Act was passed, that was tightened up. You actually needed medical certification of death. So a doctor had to... Um, see the body or there then had or there had to be a coroner's inquest so that tightened it up an awful lot so it cut down the fraud pretty much although um it did encourage a little bit of um, murder um because you could because you couldn't sign up your imaginary relatives in burial clubs uh, and then um, cash in and get the money you you actually had because you needed um, a body to get a death certificate you actually had to sign up a real person uh, and then bump them off but there was a lot less of that went on than, than there was of the the, um, the, the imaginary ones um, but there were certainly some cases there was one particularly grisly uh, pair of women called, known as the black widows of liverpool uh, and there is a book about them in the, i think it was the 1880s um, that they bumped off quite a lot of people. There were very strong suggestions that 
they were the ones who got caught and these were the only particular charges they could hang on them. Um, so, again, that's a whole other subject, but a uh, very delightful one. Now, some figures. And this is just uh, going back to what I said about 1874 and even quite reputable books and books by written, written by people who are quite well known and, as I said, should know better, will say that birth registration... Um, wasn't compulsory till 1875. And one person, whom I will not name, actually said that the rate of registrations went up sharply then. Well, this is, um, a, this is a chart that will show you the, the number of registrations from 1870 through to 1880. And uh, these are... I haven't got the exact numbers on here, but the, the diagram is pretty much... is reasonably accurate. So there's 1870, and then 1871, a few more, going up a little bit, 72, fairly even sort of curve, and then 1874. And then next one coming up, 1875. This is the year that the Act comes into operation, when the law is tightened up, and uh, what would you expect to happen here? And I don't want to sound like a game show host, but I don't actually want the audience going higher, higher. But this is what actually happened. The number of birth registrations actually fell slightly. It's only a very small increase, and it's not really statistically significant, I wouldn't say. But the point is, it did not shoot up. So it's um, quite significant. 1876, it seems to have recovered a bit from its hiccup, and it's gone up slightly more. And then 77, back down a little bit, 78, up again. 79 and 80, again, down slightly. But you see, there is a gradual increase um, in the population from 1870 to 1880. Again, if you want to compare the census statistics, they're not absolutely spot on because you get people leaving the country and people arriving. So you're not exactly comparing like with like. But basically, the, uh, the, the 1874 Act did not make any significant difference to the rate of birth registration. Please write this out 100 times before doing any more family history research. This is, this is, this is part of a, a concerted campaign to spread the word about the myth of 1874. So please tell all your friends. Um, this is just a little bit of fun, an empty marriage. This is an example of a certificate that uh, somebody showed to me. Uh, it's a marriage certificate, um, and it looks pretty much like a lot of other marriage certificates that I'm sure many of you will have ordered, um, except that there's a, it's full of holes, really. That it doesn't say what church it was, um, what town or county it was in. The only clue at the bottom is because um, it, was, it was in the Huddersfield Registration District, but that's only because uh, the GRO typed that on, as they do, uh, when they issued the certificate. Um, even better, there is no... Um, there are no names of the bride or groom. There is no date of the marriage. So I think the clergyman must have been well into his second bottle of port when he made that particular copy. Uh, you might wonder how anybody would find that and be able to order it. But for some reason, he did actually manage to fill in the, the, um, uh, where the signatures of the bride and groom uh, should be and the witnesses. So it got into the GRO indexes. It actually shouldn't have been issued, though, because when the GRO issue birth, marriage and death certificates. Most of the time, you will get something that looks like this. It's a photocopy onto the official certificate blank with the seal and so forth. Uh, and occasionally, you'll get one which is typed or handwritten. Now, usually, you get a typed or handwritten one 
when the original is very poor quality. And this tends to happen for the earlier years of registration. And it's very hard to read, so they blow it up on a big screen and they look at it really carefully and they do the best they can and they will give you a, a, a handwritten copy. Um, but the other time when they are supposed to do that is if there, there, are, there are bits missing. Now, in this case, the significant thing is the name of the church. Now, the indexes at the General Register Office are made up from the copies of the certificates that are sent to them every quarter. They're called the quarterly returns from every registrar and from every clergyman who's performed any marriages. And the returns that they sent, they were on blanks, which looked exactly like the register pages, except that they were loose sheets and not from bound books. And a clergyman, particularly if he had a, a large parish or was very lazy would write the name of the church maybe in the very first one, but he wouldn't repeat it on all of the others, which makes sense because if you're paying for your own ink and you've got arthritis, you don't want to write any more than you absolutely need to. So it's not that unusual to find that the church is left blank, in which case the GRO are supposed to give you a printed or a handwritten copy because they can't take this and then add bits into it because they'd be breaking the law because that would be interfering with a, a certified copy. Uh, but just occasionally, because one will slip through the net. And when they do, it's a nice little curiosity. So my friend gave this to me and I photocopied it, so I've kept it for posterity and to shame the GRO. But it, they, they do very occasionally um, slip out like this. Um, I think he went back and he got them to do a proper copy. But uh, you still... Uh, it'd be interesting to see what, the, uh, what they actually came up with. But it just shows you the sort of thing that, uh, that, that can happen. Now, that's um, Somerset House... And I did go into Somerset House and look at the birth, marriage and death books just the once in 1972. It was a long time ago, and I wasn't really doing family history then. But I'm glad that I can say, oh, yes, I have been there. I went in there. I've been on the, the mezzanine, and I looked at the books. In fact, there were four of us doing one search. And there was plenty of room for us to do it. It was really, really quiet. And this is um, a bit of the inside of Somerset House. This picture is, a, is actually captioned in the picture library that provided it. And it's appeared in magazines, it's appeared in History Today, as General Register Office Clerks Indexing the 1861 Census. Well, that's wrong on a number of levels. I think if they'd indexed the 1861 Census, then I think we probably would have noticed Apart from anything else, the, the, the census work wasn't carried on in Somerset House. That was uh, in um, this period, was in the building called Craig's Court, which was uh, a, a row of uh, terraced Georgian houses um, near Trafalgar Square, and that is not a small Georgian terraced house. That's the inside of Somerset House. What these men are actually doing, if you look over the shoulders of the ones in the foreground, is you can see they are actually writing up pages of the GRO indexes, late lamented parchment volumes. Makes Somerset House look awfully nice, though. It's a jolly civilised place to work. There's a nice little individual, um, angle, you know, Victorian angle poise lamps and uh, nice men sitting there in their nice business suits. Um, the reality of Somerset House wasn't quite that rosy, as Jill said at the beginning. We're trying to recreate the conditions here. Um, it's a very nice building to look at. It's very imposing. Um, but it, it was not ideal to work in, considering it was sort of purpose-built as offices and various government departments and uh, other organisations had their offices there. But it was, um, it was too hot in summer, it was too cold in winter, 
as at least one infestation of rats. And, of course, it was awfully close to the river, which was not a great place to be in high summer in the 1840s. Um, and apart from one or two bits, which were rather grand, like this big mezzanine gallery, it was a series of awkward little interconnected rooms which was not conducive to a smooth workflow. So um, it, it wasn't a great place to work. It wasn't a great place to work for a variety of other reasons as well. You can't always get the staff, basically. Now, in the very early days, as I said, poor Mr Lister had no real idea of what the demand was going to be, what the take-up would be for civil registration and how many staff he would need. And if you're not sure how many staff you need and you might need to get rid of them quickly, what do you do? You employ temps. And the men who did the original indexes in the first couple of years, who worked on the collecting and the copying, the indexing, they were agency temps. They came from a firm of uh, law stationers called Grosvenor and Chater, who had a nice sideline in hiring out staff uh, to, do, you know, to do temporary office work. I had no idea that that sort of thing went that far back. It may go even further for all I know. I haven't found out yet, but since the General Register Office only came into being in 1836, technically I've got no interest in anything that, that happens any earlier than that. Um, and they did carry on using temporary workers um, for, for, quite, for a number of purposes. Uh, most famously, the, um, um, the, the clerks who worked on the censuses, every, every census year, the census office had to be set up from scratch. It needed a, a census act. And once the act was passed and they got the go-ahead, they would employ a whole army of temps. Some of them came back census after census, but um, they were temporary workers. But they also employed temporary workers in other bits of the General Register Office. And once they got going a bit, then they did employ regular staff. Uh, and from about the mid-1840s onwards, essentially you've got a, a sort of fairly stable workforce, if not a solvent one. Now, one of the problems with being the General Register Office is that you're a bit of a, a jumped-up Johnny-come-lately of a department. You are not going to get the creme de la creme. If you are an ambitious young man and you want to go into the civil service, you want to go into the, you know, the Admiralty or the Home Office, or the Treasury, one of the big sexy departments like that, where a man can make a name for himself, not this sort of little prefab thing that's just been stuck on the outside. So they didn't necessarily get the best um, staff. Um, and another complication was that they didn't get to recruit their own staff either. They were that The staff were actually recruited and supplied by the Treasury, and the General Register Office just had to take what it was given. And sometimes what it was given really wasn't very good at all. So um, there was a certain amount of discontentment about that. And uh, the, the Registrar General who followed Thomas Lister uh, was George Graham, who is a, a great sort of hero of mine. I think he did a, he did a wonderful job uh, considering. And he was also quite quotable. And he is talking about uh, employing temporary staff. And he says, in some offices where there is occasionally a sudden temporary influx of work requiring speedy attention. I know the system of writers supplied by law stationers who, as middlemen, abstract a large share of the poor writer's hard earnings in payment for the law stationers' patronage. 
I'm also acquainted with the system of employing boys from 13 to 16 years of age at very low wages and then discharging them. But I do not approve of either system in established government offices. I have a great experience of temporary clerks and boys um, in a temporary office, having had under my control 105 temporary clerks, 37 of whom were not 20 years old. If temporary clerks and writers and boys are on day pay, they may be placed at desks, but no amount of supervision can obtain from all of them a good day's work. They know that the more work they execute in a day, the sooner their temporary employment will cease, and they will be again turned adrift. Therefore, it is in their interest to do as little work as possible. Now, far be it for me to cast aspersions on temporary workers. I've been one myself. But someone who, uh, until fairly recently, actually worked for the General Register Office, was reasonably senior, but had started as a temp, said that um, in his early days, had employed a lot of temps, I think in the 1970s, uh, and then they didn't quite have enough work for them to do, but they didn't want to let them go for whatever reason. So they, they hit on a, a sort of job creation scheme, and they said, well, you know those, those, those grubby old parchment books? Some of them, they've got sort of penciled scribble marks on them. Um, here's some rubbers. Can you just rub them out? Uh, and that's what they did. Now, I found this out because I had discovered from my nerdy Anoraki research that when the clerks who compiled the indexes, who literally wrote out the parchment indexes in their more or less nice copper plate writing, they were issued a sort of eight pages at once and uh, they had to sign for them. And then when they'd done them, they had to put their initials on the top in pencil so that when the work was checked, which, believe it or not, it was checked, not as much as it should have been, but it was, when it was checked, they knew whose it was. And when you used to look at the old books, I could see, sometimes you would see at the top of a page, you would, you would see the initials of the clerk who'd uh, actually written that page, and sometimes you would see the initials of the senior clerk who'd done the checking. And sometimes you would even see the number of mistakes they found circled. But you would only find that sometimes. And I mentioned this to the search room supervisor. And he said, oh, yes, well, when I was a temp in the 70s. <laughs> so that's how I know what those pencil marks were and why you don't always see them. Well, you don't see them at all anymore, except for the few that I managed to take photographs of before the place closed. But that was a little bit of history that civil servants were being paid um, to literally erase. So that's the temporary workers. Anyway, the permanent workers, though, sometimes they didn't fare an awful lot better with those. Now, in the 1850s, they, they, in particular, they seemed to have terrible problems with clerks getting into debt. And one of the problems with being a clerk was that you didn't get paid very much, and especially if you were in a sort of one of the, the lower-grade department like the General Register Office. You were not very well paid, but... As a middle-class person, you had a certain standard to keep up. You think Mr. Pooter, if you like. You had to be respectable. You had to have a you know, nicely polished brass door knocker. Uh, you certainly wouldn't want your wife to be going out to work. So they had a lot of financial pressure on them and actually not an awful lot of earning power. And also you get some of the younger clerks who weren't married will do as young men and older ones have always done and will continue to do, sometimes will just spend more money than they've got. 
that's not ever going to change in, um, in, in a hurry, I don't think. So there were all sorts of problems. And, the, and this, this caused great problems in the office because you had a terrible rate of absenteeism. Because if you owed uh, money to some big muscly men with tattoos, you could move house so they wouldn't know, they couldn't find you at your lodgings. But if they knew where you worked, they could lie in wait and basically you know, accost you on the way and all the way out. So you do get sudden unexplained absences and it turns out that somebody's done a bunk because he owes a lot of money. Or in one case was, um, was actually in prison for debt or another was in prison, but that wasn't for debt, that was for beating his wife. So you, you had all of that. But the, the other things that you got were, were clerks who were getting into debt and then their mind was not really on their work. And worse than that, they would sometimes draw other people into it with them. And um, there, there was one, 1855, just picking one more or less at random, a Mr. Vowles had debts of £953.17 shillings and sixpence. That's an awful lot of money in 1855 for a government clerk. And of this 953, pounds three and sixpence were bill transactions. Now, I didn't know what bill transactions were, and I asked a couple of people, and they didn't know either, and suggested maybe I should look in a law dictionary. And I thought, no, I'd rather read something that um, is in English. And I found um, what this actually was by sheer chance. I was, um, as is my habit, I was just looking through a, a sort of second-hand book fair, and I found one of the lovely Victorian improving stories. It's called Commercial Tales. It's full of um, very uh, moral tales about how you shouldn't stray from the, the, the narrow path of righteousness. And if you're tempted by drink and gambling... Um, that way lies ruin, but it's all right because if you're a good, good God-fearing Christian man and you see the light, uh, you can claw your way back into the good grace. Um, and there is a wonderful little illustration in it and also a description of what bill transactions were. And it's basically a form of borrowing money at stupid rates of interest. The idea is that you will, promise, you, you will, you will borrow a certain sum of money, say £100, what you will actually get for your £100 loan is you will actually get, say, 90 or £95. And in a month's time or two months or whatever, you then have to pay back the full £100. Now, of course, there is nobody as, uh, quite as optimistic as the, as the desperate borrower. And people are often totally confident, oh, it's all right, just I'll have the money in a month or have it in three months. And, of course, they wouldn't. So they would either take out another loan to cover this one and get themselves into even worse trouble, or the alternative, and this is kind of the way drug dealers work, I think. If you go to your, your friendly um, neighbourhood loan shark uh, and they would say, well, I can't pay you back, and then the, your friendly neighbourhood loan shark would say, well, we can either break both your legs or supposing you haul in some more suckers and effectively, uh, you, would, you, you, would, you would pay off your own debts by uh, dropping some other people in it. Um, and, and this is what happened. This, this, this Mr. Vowles was not only bankrupt, but he'd, he'd also managed to um, implicate various other people. And in fact, two brothers, uh, and the father of these two brothers, um, was actually complaining to the, uh, the Registrar General because although it hadn't gone on under the, in the premises, 
his, his, one of his sons worked there, and that's how he came into um, contact with the, with the detestable uh, Mr. Vowles and his usurious dealings as a money lender and bill discounter. And uh, one of these uh, unfortunate sons actually uh, was bankrupt. And there are various others. There's another, there's a Mr. Rawlings, in 18, this is a bit earlier, 1847. An order was made for deductions from his salary. He'd been absent for no good reason. Well, they turned out there was a good reason for it. He was avoiding the, uh, the, the big muscular men with the tattoos who were coming to get the money, and so on and so on. And there were quite a lot of these. But it wasn't just the, you know, the debts. Sometimes there were various other um, unfortunate circumstances. Now, in that time, there were... Virtually no pensions. Later on, there were some people who were eligible for pensions, but not very many. So, bottom line, really, you carried on working for as long as you could drag your poor old carcass into the office, because if you had no savings or no other income, the alternative was pretty much the workhouse. So there were few unfortunate cases where there were some men who kept turning up to work, and they really shouldn't have done there was a Mr. Martindale, again, one of two brothers. He'd joined the office in 1845, although he was not a young man then. He was aged about 53 in 1845. And uh, this report on him in the 1850s says, he is not altogether free from paralytic affliction and is now in a deplorable state. And it is not convenient that he should have an entire room devoted to his sole use. The Registrar-General recommended his removal... Uh, but also a gratuity to basically pay him off and give him something to live on. And the medical report that was commissioned said um, that he has part paralysis of the left leg, almost total loss of vision in the left eye. Well, that's just what you want in a clerk who's writing the indexes. Never mind. Um, Irritability of the bladder. (laughs) Some incontinence. He says he has no mental affliction. So um, he was not uh, you know, fun to be around. And there was another one later on who I think was actually even worse, but who did have some sort of mental affliction as well and was even more unpleasant to be around. So I mean, it was difficult to do a good day's work with all this going on around you. There were also, I mentioned, if anybody looked at a little bit of blurb, one of the things I, I picked up on is that as well as registering deaths in Somerset House, there were also, to my knowledge so far, three actual deaths that took place there. One of them was, was terribly low-key. It was the, like any government building at that time. There was a, a live-in, on-site office keeper whose house, whose apartments were in Somerset House. And, you know, poor man died you know, in his own bed. So fairly unremarkable. It's just that he had an interesting address. But um, the, the next one, some years later, was a man who was fortunately reasonably senior and had an office to himself. But um, he was taken with a seizure of some kind, which may have been a stroke. And King's College Hospital was conveniently next door at the time, and they got doctors in and looked at him. And they decided that he was, he was terribly, gravely ill, much too ill to be moved, not even to the hospital next door. So he just had to, he lay there in his, in his office for about two or three days, you know, before the poor man finally expired. Presumably the work of the office going on around him and up and down the corridor, this poor man's breathing his last... And the other one, much later, and this was, I think, just into the 20th century, was a poor young man. And unusually for a death in England, we know exactly the time of his death. He was a young clerk in Somerset House, and he did have some sort of congenital heart problem. And I don't know if any of you have ever been at a a school or some place of employment 
where you have to sign in and at a certain hour a red line is drawn in the book after which you are late. Well, he knew he was just pushing it a bit and he was running up the stairs about three at a time to avoid just as the red line was being drawn um, and that last sprint was sadly too much for him. And he um, keeled over and collapsed and died. So whatever time it was that the red line was, was uh, um, in the habit of being drawn, that is precisely his time of death. And I think that's probably quite a good place to end it, um, <laughs> except just to maybe point you in the direction of a few sources. Most of what I found out that I've told you today is from National Archives documents, mainly in Registrar General and Home Office series. The illustration there is a page from my very favourite document, RG 2098, which is a, a sort of compendium of useful information for use in the General Register Office. House of Commons parliamentary papers have got all sorts of interesting things in, and I've gleaned quite a lot from newspapers. The Times Online is great because you can put all sorts of search terms in, and all sorts of other things. But I hope now if you look at birth, marriage and death indexes, that you'll maybe think a little bit about what went on behind them. You know, they're documents, but they were compiled by people. And some of them were quite interesting. Thank you very much for listening. This event was recorded live on the 15th of January, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>